You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So today we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. We're carrying on in our study of this book. You know, in ancient and medieval times, there was a pseudoscience known as alchemy that was practiced in many parts of the world. In fact, some people believe that the CDC is still practicing it. But <laughs> among the many objectives uh, that, the, that the alchemists pursued, and, and maybe the most important and, and profitable one, was, known as, was a process known as chrysopoeia. And chrysopoeia is the process of transmutation of base metals like lead into gold. You must have heard this before, that the alchemists' cream dream was to take things, common elements like lead, and transmutate it into gold. And although there were lots of spurious claims by alchemists that they had actually achieved this, the truth of the matter is that no alchemist was ever able to change lead into gold. The atomic structure of lead is, is significantly different than gold. And short of a nuclear particle accelerator and a whole lot of energy, that is not going to change. And so lead will be lead and gold will remain distant to it in its molecular structure and value. Well, there's another equally impossible transmutation that humans have attempted to do on their own for thousands of years, and that is to change the depraved human nature into a moral and righteous nature that would be acceptable before a holy God. And just like alchemists of old labored in vain to transform lead into gold, human beings toil in vain to transform our fallen nature into a righteous nature that would be acceptable before God. But God, two most powerful words in the Bible, but God sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. And the transformation that Jesus Christ can achieve in the life of a sinner like you and like me is even more remarkable than the transmutation of lead into gold. And there's no better poster child that we can find anywhere in history of this transformation than Paul the Apostle. And in our passage this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is providing his young mentee, Timothy, with encouragement to stay in the fight, stay in the ministry in Ephesus where he was, and ignore the discouragements of Satan that would tell him that he's a hopeless sinner who can be of no use to God. And I might extend that that uh, advice to El, you know, Eliana has moved, has transformed from this person who is bound up in the, in the ravages of, of a sinful nature that we all have without the Lord. And now the Lord has called her, has changed her. And buddy, you better believe that she is a target now for the enemy. And so the, the advice that Paul is giving Timothy here is for anyone in that situation and to our dear sister Eliana, the same thing. 
Don't let, the, don't let the enemy spit in your ear that you can be no use to God because of the sins of your past. Paul is going to describe for us how if anyone should be disqualified from ministry due to past sin, it would be him. His description of himself as chief of sinners is no exaggeration, as we're going to see in this, in this lesson. Yet Paul describes how Jesus Christ transformed him into an extraordinary minister of the gospel. And so this, this encouraging message that Paul is giving to Timothy, I want you to understand he's giving it to you and me as well. We all have a past. We all have our public life, our private life, and then our secret life. And we might be the only ones we think that know that secret life, but God knows it. And yet... God can transform that life. And so here's, here's the three steps we're going to see portrayed in this passage. First of all, Paul's going to describe who he was. And as, you're, as we're going through this together, think about this. Who I was. Who I was before Christ. Secondly, what did God do in Paul? I want you to think of it as, what has God done in you? I think Eliana gave a beautiful description of what God is doing in her. And then thirdly, who is the man that Paul became? Ask yourself, who is the man or woman that you have become? So if you would, please stand with me. We're going to read the verses between 12 and 20. And I just want to warn you in advance, I'm going to take these verses out of order to, to be able to... to Construct a narrative that gives you that transformational process of who Paul was, what God did, who he became. And, and again, I ask that you transfer those same three questions to yourself. So here's what it says. This is Paul now speaking. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent or violent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy. That in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and good conscience, which some have rejected, Concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, first of all, we thank you for the life of Eliana. We thank you, God, that you've claimed it for your own. We thank you, God, that you have put in her a hunger and a desire and a thirst for you, Lord. And Father, as we go through this passage, God, I pray that we would... We would just overlay this message on our own lives, Lord. All of us were base metal, lead, stone in our lives before you. And yet, Lord, you came into our lives and you transformed us. 
And so this morning, Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of understanding of our hearts and minds, that we would receive these truths and we would stand on these truths, Lord. Father, as your servant this morning to bring this message to your beautiful people, Lord, I pray that nothing would issue forth from my heart or my lips, but that which you want these people to hear this morning. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you see there in verse 13, and we're, we're talking now about who Paul was. And as I look at who Paul was, I see myself. Because he gives a very concise and yet profound description of who he was in verse 13. He says, first thing he says is, I was formerly a blasphemer. Now, blasphemy is spoken words, written words, or conduct which displays open contempt for the name, the character, or the work of God. To disparage the name or character of God is considered by God to be among the most grievous sins a human being can commit. Uh, just absolutely, I mean, so serious did God consider the blaspheming of his name, his character, his work, that he prescribed in the Levitical law, you find it in Leviticus chapter 24, he, did, he, he gave forth the penalty for blasphemy, and it was a capital crime. The penalty was death by stoning. And not only did God deal harshly with those who would blaspheme his name among his own people, but God throughout history, in his own timing, has brought severe judgment upon those who are haters of God, for blaspheming his name. Give you a perfect example. It's found in Isaiah chapter 36 and 7. And there we, we receive the account of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And he's getting ready to attack the country of Judah. And he's getting ready to attack Jerusalem. And in order to, or in an attempt to demoralize the people of Judah, he sends a letter to King Hezekiah. And in that letter... He reminds the king of all the nations that the Assyrians had already conquered. The Assyrians were on a tear and they were among the most brutal enemies of Israel that there were in all of history. And they had systematically moved through the Middle East, crushing every nation in their path. And as, as Sennacherib points out to Hezekiah, he says, look, every one of those people had a God that they worshipped. And they were crying out to that God, please save us from the Assyrians. And yet their gods were not able to save them from us. What makes you think your God is any different than their gods? And so in that statement, he is, he is leveling or comparing the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth to these false, probably demonic inhabited gods that these pagan nations had. And so God gave Zanakarib the answer. He sent the angel of the Lord to the camp of the Assyrians and wiped out 185,000 of them without an Israelite even raising a sword. And of course, this had a little bit of a demoralizing effect on Sennacherib, who immediately returns to Assyria, only to go into the, uh, the temple of his god, Nisroch, and while he's worshiping this false god, his own sons come in and kill him with the sword. I think God made a statement there that blaspheming his name. And by the way, we see a lot of blaspheming of 
God in our time. You probably have seen in the news cycles of recent days this group of people who are going to be honored at the Los Angeles Dodgers game. The nuns of perpetual indulgence. It's a group of of gay men that mock the worship of God as the Catholic people would do so. And you see that and you say, how could, this, how could this go on? How could God allow this? Trust me. God will bring judgment on that. And he will bring judgment on those who approve that. Because that is, that is blasphemy of the highest order. Paul's sin as a blasphemer was in the way in which he spoke against the name and the person of Jesus Christ. Because Paul was considered, because Paul considered Jesus to be the leader of a dangerous cult, he did everything he could to discredit what they called at that time the way and people in the way. And he spoke against Jesus and he acted against Jesus. Jesus was the bullseye for him. Now he says there in verse 13 of our text that he did it in ignorance. He said, although I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. Please let me clarify that ignorance is not an excuse to sin. It's not. I mean, you know that because we're born with a sin nature. John chapter 3 tells us we're born in condemnation. So we know that ignorance cannot be an excuse for sin, but it is an invitation for God to show mercy and grace. Much more so than somebody who sins with knowledge, who understands perfectly what God's will and word says, and yet does it anyway. And so Paul is, is, is pointing out that his blasphemy ultimately God would show him grace even in that which he did. Paul also describes himself there as a persecutor and a violent man. This is also in verse 13. Paul did not just stop at words that disparaged the name of Christ. Paul carried with him the memories of the terrible actions that he took against God, God's Messiah, and God's people. And no one is better able to describe uh, those actions than Paul himself. Because on a couple of occasions in the book of Acts, he gave his testimony, much like El gave his testimony this morning. Now, uh, you know, El did not go into the, the uh, particulars of where she was, the things that she may have committed or thought or done in, in her time before the Lord. But Paul does... Uh, just a couple of places to, to note. These are Paul's words. In Acts chapter 22, he's addressing a murderous mob in Jerusalem who wanted to kill him on the spot. And he's being taken to be interrogated, but he, he, he says, hold on a second. He wants to let them know that, look, I was just as you were. I was somebody who hated the way. I hated Christ. I hated his people. Listen to what he says. This is found in verses 4 and 5 and then 19 and 20 in uh, Acts 22. He said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus. So he's going to a whole other place 
to bring in chains even those who were, to, uh, were there to Jerusalem to be punished. This is how determined he was to, to rub out the people of God. And then even he gives a testimony as he's responding to the Lord. The Lord is warning him in his account. He said, the Lord at one point warned me as I was in Jerusalem to get out of there because there were people who wanted to kill him for his testimony. And he says in verse 19, so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Now to me, his actions, his approval, his endorsement of the death of Stephen, nowhere in scripture says it, so I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but this is my sensibility of that. Given who I know Paul became, I believe that one of the most chilling and haunting memories that he carried with him for the rest of his life was the death of Stephen. And you can go to, I believe it's Acts chapter 7, and listen to the sermon that, that Stephen spoke in the moments before the rocks started flying. And the things that he said as he was being killed must have been burned on Paul's heart. And he knew that he, he was not only complicit, but he was the official that was, that was officiating that execution. And so when he talks about himself being uh, a violent man, uh, please don't think for a moment that he is, he is puffing this up to somehow show what a terrible guy he was so you can see what a good guy he's become. This is factual. Now, what made Paul the chief of sinners? Because everybody's a sinner, right? So what gives him the right to claim the top spot? <laughs> Well, most of us, when we sin, do so by serving ourselves rather than God. And although our sinful actions are an affront to God, let's face it, God is offended when we sin, our conduct generally is not specifically directed or intended to poke the person, the character, or the work of God. We're just being carnal, lustful people. In Paul's case, all of his words and actions were directed intentionally to disparage the name of God, to undermine and undercut the words of Jesus, to demolish the memory of Christ, to literally persecute and kill his followers. And when that happens, when a prominent religious figure, as Paul was seen at that time, when a person such as that is known to openly attack the truth of Jesus Christ, he is engaging in a conduct that basically enlists and encourages other people to blaspheme God. This is why, this is a big reason why you see throughout the epistles that comprise the New Testament, countless warnings against false teaching. Paul warned against false teaching. John warned against false teaching in his epistles. Peter warned against false teaching in his epistles. James warned against false teaching in his epistle. Jude, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, made his whole letter pretty much on that theme. And the reason is, 
Again, when people of perceived stature in the religious community speak falsehoods concerning the nature of Christ and his word, you are blaspheming and you are encouraging others to do the same. And this is why, uh, you know, I'll take my licks, but I have called out on occasion here. Folks who have done that because I'm your shepherd, at least for the next month, I'm your shepherd. And my heart is to say, I don't want any of you, whether you make a family decision at some point to go and attend another church or you're on the road traveling or whatever, I want you to be able to discern when you're in front of somebody who's doing that. I, I mentioned, I think a couple of weeks ago, a very prominent pastor in the Atlanta area who is essentially saying, you, you can't believe the literal account of creation in the Bible. This was just an attempt by the, writer of, the writers of Genesis to, uh, as they would term it, writers of Genesis, but Moses, to dumb it down so that the people of that time could somehow conceptualize how things came to be. They didn't have all the scientific knowledge and background that we have. So we really know what happened, which of course is theistic evolution in his view. What you do when you say that the Bible doesn't mean what it literally says is you impugn the word of God. You're essentially saying that, first of all, this is not revelation from God. This is just a storybook that gives us principles for living. That is an affront to God. That goes directly contrary to what Jesus himself said about the word of God. And so... Paul, knowing that this was what he had done, felt justified, and I would have to agree with him, when he called himself the chief of sinners. Because there's no worse thing you can do in the eyes of God. It's bad enough that we're all personally destined for hell without Christ in our lives. But it's quite another thing to take people who might have had the chance to hear the truth, instead hear falsehood. That leads them in, in, to another gospel, which Paul himself warned against in the book of Galatians. This is why in verses 19 and 20 of our text, notice what he says there. He's talking about, he's encouraging Timothy and he's telling him, look, there were prophecies made about you. The Lord has his hand on your life. By the way, just in a side story, that's what I saw in Vince the first time I met him. That's why Vince will be your new pastor, 1st of July. Because the very first time I met him and shook his hand, I kid you not, it became profoundly true to me that the Lord had his hand on that life. On that life. It wasn't in that moment that I figured, oh, well, then he could be the pastor of this church. Not at all. But I had a pretty good idea that he was going to be a pastor somewhere because the Lord gave me a prophetic word, if you want to say it that way. And this is why over the last two years, we've kind of been developing this to say, okay, I want to check to be sure that what I heard was the right thing. And so he's encouraging Timothy here, saying, having faith and good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. And then he calls out two men that he knew well, and he knew were now blaspheming the Lord with false teaching, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, believe me, Paul didn't have the power nor the intent to cast them into hell. 
I think Paul is assuming they're, they're true brothers, but he's saying that, you know, after being warned, after being taken to the word, after being shown the error of one's ways, if a believer insists on walking in the world, what you typically do is you say, okay, we break fellowship with you from the church, which means now you're walking in the world. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. And in confronting and living under the hot breath of that wicked ruler, perhaps your heart will turn back to the Lord. That's what he's saying here. But notice the thing that he's calling out on them is blasphemy from false teaching. Okay? So that's who Paul was. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was a violent man. And his violence and persecution all focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what did God do in Paul's life? Well, we see there in verse uh, 12. Well, let's go to verse 15 first. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The first thing that God did in Paul's life, save him. He saved him. Now, a lot of people, uh, Christian people in our day, have trouble with the word saved. They have trouble with the word saved because it, it, it suggests that there was a big problem before the salvation experience. Now, to a lot of you in this room, you're, you're probably wondering, well, really? That's kind of obvious. But let me tell you, somehow sin and the title sinner has left the lexicon of the pulpit. In a lot of places in this world, sin is never mentioned. Sin is never called out. No one has ever called them what they are, which is a sinner. Please understand, if I look at you in your direction and say sinners, I'm not leaving myself out. I love that time-worn statement that says, whenever you point the finger, three more are pointing back at you. We're all sinners. If you would, turn with me to John chapter 3. You'll say, oh, come on, we've done this so many times. Good, we're going to do it one more time. Uh, because people love to read John 3.16. Remember the guy, some of you probably aren't old enough, but some of us are. Used to be back in the like 70s and, and even into the 80s, any football game you watched, there was that guy with the big colored afro, had John 316, always held up, just John 316. Love that guy. Love that guy. Can't wait to meet him in heaven. Um, so people are fixated on John 316 as they should. It's, it's pretty much the value proposition of knowing Jesus Christ. But you've got to read the whole passage because it really rounds out the picture. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the part we all know really well. But then we carry on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So right now that tells you a whole lot of people in this world who hate Christians have a wrong idea about Jesus because they think that he and his followers are there to be spiritual police on the beat, beating up on people who are not followers of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, here's the reason why he didn't come with the express purpose to condemn the world. He who believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned. 
But get this. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This is the beauty of El's testimony, by the way. She was in the darkness. She was bumping into things in the darkness. God showed her grace, shined that light into her life, and she moved towards the light. It's just what he says here. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. See, when you come to Christ truly, there are two inescapable revelations that you get. One is the purity and the awesome holiness of God, and the other is your depraved, condemned, miserable condition. And you can't reconcile the two, and so you're heartbroken. You're, you're Isaiah in front of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 6 that we saw a couple of weeks ago, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. And then the Lord touches his mouth and purifies him. And this is the light that he speaks of here. God saved him, but then he did something else. And this is where we see in verse 12 of our text. He says, and I thank God, thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. What God did, having saved Paul, is he first called him and then he enabled him. Pastor Chuck Smith used to have a saying that uh, those of us in the pastorate know well. He would say, God doesn't call the able. He enables the called. I am living proof of that, to be totally honest. I had no idea, no concept. I didn't even have necessarily a desire to pastor a church. I had a different thing going on. But I truly, with every fiber of my being, Believe God called me. And he had to work out 23 years of experience that actually was an obstacle to pastoring a church. And and so he enabled me over time. And this he did with Paul. He enabled him. Um, In Paul's Pharisaic self-righteousness, he was about as unable to be a minister of the gospel as a person could be. Because the one thing that will absolutely blow to smithereens anybody's efforts in ministry is pride. It's pride. There's a picture in my office of me getting baptized when I got baptized. The man who's baptizing me is the same pastor that Jeff and Linda Breed had, Bill Gallantin. And then the day came when I went in the muddy, stinky waters of Menden Ponds in a Speedo, to my everlasting shame. <laughs> and I'm standing there. You'll see it. I'm right there. And, and it's the moment. It's literally the moment. Bill Gallatin has got his hand on my back and he's holding my hand. And he says, do you want to say something before you go into the water? He said, do you want to you give? Yeah, this is what it was. You want to give something to the Lord before you go in the water? I had no idea this was going to be a test. I had no preconceived. I had no idea that I was going to be asked a question. And while I'm in that confusion, out of my mouth comes one word. Pride. And it was the right word that the Lord authored in that moment, thank God, because I was dumbstruck. And And this was where Paul was. And yet, 
to show you the calling that God placed on his life, you know the story of Paul being on the Damascus Road and the light, the very light that we talked about in John 3 is shown upon him. And now he knows he needs to come to that light. That light is inescapable. And so he, he, he says, yes, Lord, I'll do what you ask. But the Lord blinds him in that moment because the Lord wants him to not look around. He wants him to look within. But he sends a servant by the name of Ananias to go and to be God's instrument to restore Paul's sight. And Ananias saying, uh, Lord, uh, I've heard of this guy. Not somebody I want to be around. Not, not a good man. And notice what the Lord says to him. This is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. The Lord says to Ananias, Paul is a chosen vessel of mine, a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, before kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. This call on Paul's life was made before Paul was ever born. When you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it tells you we, were, we are workmanship of God, created for works that he established beforehand, probably before the foundations of the world. God knew that Paul was going to be an instrument in his hand and he was going to be a tremendous instrument in his hand. He was called. This is something God did in his life. He saved him, he called him, and then he enabled him to do the things that he would do. And he will do that for you. If you are here today as a saved person, God has a calling on your life. You may already know what your calling is. You may not. Ask him. Ask him. Or maybe just like he did with Eliana, he'll just shine it on you. But you're here for a reason, okay? You're not just here as a haphazard person, uh, you know, making your way through the world for the time that God gives you. You are something that God created. You are someone that God created for a purpose. Another thing God did in his life is shown to us there in verse 14 of our text. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that, that God extended to him exceeding abundant grace in his life. Grace is unmerited favor. It is the ultimate gift. You didn't deserve it. Maybe your conduct would, uh, would lead one to believe that no, no one in your posture should ever get this beautiful thing. But yet... The giver of the gift extends it solely because that's their heart to do. And this is something that Paul acknowledged in his life. He obviously knew of the grace that God extended to him to save him. But it goes beyond that. And I just want to take you briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because Paul in this chapter, telling the Corinthian church, how the grace of God can extend from salvation to sanctification. That is, that process by which God uses the circumstances of your life to conform you into the image of Christ. This is, what he, this is just an excerpt of what he said. This is picking up in verse 8 of, first, of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength so that we despaired even of life 
Without getting into all the nitty-gritty details, Paul simply told them that we had the kind of troubles that were such that we just wanted to give up life. It was that bad. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. What Paul is giving you there is the extension of God's grace to save us in the past, deliver us not from, but through trials in the present, and ultimately deliver us unto the day of redemption. It is a comprehensive extension of grace, the grace to save, the grace to perfect, the grace to transform into that total spiritual godly being. And so he, he knows very well the grace that God has extended to him. And he even calls out specifically in chapter 12 of that same epistle, a grace that God extended to him that doesn't sound necessarily like, oh, wow, that was pretty great. But it was pretty great. You see, Paul in chapter 12 describes his experience of being snatched up to the third heaven. You know, the sky is the first heaven, outer space the second. The heavenly realm where God is, the third heaven. And there he said he saw things and heard things that are not lawful to utter. In other words, he didn't have the words. There was no way that he could convey in any meaningful way to mortal, sin-natured people the beauty, the majesty, the awesome holiness of God. Then he moves on to say that I had a thorn. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And through the editorial discretion of the Holy Spirit, we're never told what that thorn in the flesh was. And there are all kinds of speculation. There's been speculation through the centuries about what it was. Was it a physical infirmity? And there's all kinds of theories that, well, Paul had bad eyesight. He even mentions that in one of the epistles. Maybe he had one of these eye diseases that really starts to rob you of your sight. Uh, he may have had a physical infirmity. I mean, a man who's been beaten, uh, who's been imprisoned, who's been shipwrecked. Uh, stuff goes wrong, right? Some believe it may have been a spiritual thorn. Something that affected his spiritual life. And I believe that the Lord's wisdom on this was perfect because without identifying specifically what it was, we are left to fill in the blank ourselves. Not for Paul's account, but for our own. Lord, I'm dealing with this. Take this from me. Lord, I could do so much for you if I just didn't have this going on in my life. Could be physical, could be emotional, could be spiritual. Fill in the blank. Because the answer that God gives Paul is the same answer he gives you and me. In in, uh, chapter 9 of that chapter, this is God's response. Paul says he prayed three times that the Lord would remove this thorn. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, Paul explained, he saw the wisdom of the Lord because he said, look, I just had a privilege that perhaps no human being in history ever has had. 
And I could have a lot of reasons to think that I'm quite a special cat because I was allowed to see and experience that. And I could get conceited about it. And the Lord said, "Mm, mm, mm, mm-mm-mm-mm. You need to know. This, by the way, dare I say, this, this, the whole context leads me to believe that what he was dealing with was probably not a physical infirmity, although I think he probably had many. But I, I believe that it might have been something that, that attacked his self-concept of I'm this holy man, I'm this amazing minister of the gospel, etc. But I got this that I'm dealing with. And the Lord says, no, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And the last thing I want you to do is to resume your life as a Pharisee. Just a personal opinion. But this is something God did. He gave him the grace to keep him on track as a vessel of God rather than as an advocate for the Apostle Paul. Okay? So that brings us finally to who did Paul become? Who, Who have you become? Verses 16 and 17 in our text um, give us a sense. We read there, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. What Paul is describing there is God created in Paul an example, a witness. A testimony, someone who could testify to the transformation that only God can achieve in our lives. Paul became a living epistle. You, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here today, you are a living epistle. Your life speaks Christ. That is the commission you've been given. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a silver-tongued Uh, pastor or anything like that you need to live Christ and that's who you become you become living testimony of the power of God to transmutate a sinful nature into a godly nature that you can display on the world for his glory that's number one that Paul became as an example to others secondly Paul describes and he's just simply telling us what the Lord thinks not what he thinks Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful. Now, if if we can take on face value what the book of Acts is telling us about Paul the Apostle, we, we would have no choice but to conclude that this man was faithful. A quote from Charles Spurgeon. Brother, there is no reason why, if you have gone very far in sin, that you should not go equally far in usefulness to the Lord. That's Paul's story. Paul went very far in sin. Paul Paul didn't just sin for himself. He sinned against Christ. He did it in word and in deed. And once the Lord got a hold of him, well, he spread the gospel through Asia Minor. He brought the gospel to his people, Israel, even that they rejected it. He testified to it at great pains to himself. He brought the gospel to the continent of Europe. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament, 14 if you attribute Hebrews to him. And something else he did and does, did, but even does through the pages of scripture that is most commendable. And you see it there described in verses 18 and 19 when he's, he, he says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, 
according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Paul was an extraordinary mentor. He mentored Timothy like a son. He called him his son in the Lord. He mentored Silas. Later on in his ministry, he reconnected with John Mark, and I'm sure he mentored him, and I'm sure he mentored many others. Paul himself was mentored by Barnabas. And so what God does in the man or the woman of God is first save them, then call them, then enable them, then use them as an example, then use them to enrich the lives of somebody who's less mature in their walk with Jesus. Paul typified that. So the message for us today is this. We are born pure lead. We are born very base. We are people of a sin nature. And there's nothing we can do to transmutate that into anything that could be acceptable before holy God. But God sent his son Jesus into the world to save sinners like you and me and Paul. And having saved us, he will call you to where he wants you to be in his kingdom, in in, in this world. He will enable you to do what he has called you to do. You will become a living testimony before the world. You should. You should aspire to that. You have the opportunity to be faithful, to speak Christ, to live out Christ, to have a heart for others, to bring along a brother or sister who's further behind in their development in Jesus Christ. Paul's the poster child for that. But you and me live in his legacy. And because of that legacy, we're we're tremendously enriched. So today, if you are here and you have not... If you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, know that you are right where you were when you entered this this earth in condemnation. It's unavoidable. It's who the human race is. But you don't have to stay there. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. He is shining that light. He's shining that light through Paul's testimony. And people who are drawn to the light are saved. And people who reject the light because they prefer the darkness remain in darkness. Don't stay there. If you're here today and you would like to receive Jesus Christ, I ask that you uh, you bring the lights down just a tiny bit and pray this prayer right where you are. Pray this prayer right where you are. And then if you would just let me know afterwards that you've prayed that prayer because we would want to come alongside you. We would want to do what Paul the Apostle taught us to do, which is to mentor you, to help you on your journey with the Lord. So pray with me now, if you would. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know in my own righteousness, in my own strength, I have no capacity, Lord, to change into a nature that could ever be acceptable, before a holy God. And so, Lord, I lay my life before you, Jesus. 
And I pray that you would come into my life, not only as my Savior, but as my Lord. That you would take over my life, Lord. That you would wash me clean from the sins that I so willingly embraced before knowing you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just wash me of those sins, Lord, because I believe you came to earth in human flesh and lived a human life on this earth just as I do, although you lived without sin. And when the appointed time came, Lord, you took my sins and the sins of the whole world upon yourself. And though you were innocent of all, you paid the penalty for all with your life and died on the cross of Calvary. And Lord, I believe that you were raised bodily from the dead three days later to prove your conquering sin and death is real. And Lord, you promise that one day you will return for your church. And Lord, I desire to be among them, to live forever with you in heaven. And Lord, I pray for any man or woman that prayed that prayer this morning, Lord, that you would make yourself profoundly known to them, that they would know now that they are a child of God and that you live in them forever. Lord, finally, I want to thank you again for Eliana's testimony, Lord, for her life. She's a living epistle. And I pray that for many others that are here today. Lord, I also want to lift up those who have served in our armed services, in our fire and police rescue, as they have sacrificed their time and even their lives for this nation, which I believe still is a nation under God. And we thank you for the many blessings that are this nation, Lord. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in this rain. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Marini. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor David's ministry by visiting calvarychapelchapelhill.org.